Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week in Daily Plaza, things look a little different. Doctors Without Borders has set up camp. Their exhibit, Forced from Home, has tents and boats all over the place. There are 25 aid workers letting people know about their work around the world. With me is one of them. Mark Learer is a nurse who's completed four assignments with Doctors Without Borders since 2014. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me here. You guys went to a good deal of effort to uh, bring this roadshow forced from home to Chicago. You've brought it to a bunch of other places. Why are you doing this? Well, so this is uh, year three of us uh, doing this exhibition. Uh, year one, we were on the East Coast. Year two, on the West Coast. Now, this year is our Midwest to Down South iteration of this tour. Um, as it has been in every every year before this, um, our entire goal is an education and an awareness campaign. There is 68.5 million people around the world right now that are being forced from their home for one reason or another. And we felt it was our responsibility to, to bring these stories and these realities to the public. Tell us a bit about yourself. You were most recently in the Mediterranean. Yeah, so my most recent uh, mission that I had uh, last done was out on the Mediterranean. I was on a search and rescue vessel called the Aquarius, and uh, we were pulling refugee boats in distress out of the water. What was that like? It's a very powerful, powerful uh, mission to be on. It's not typical for us because generally most of our projects are on land. So this is a very different thing to be out at the sea, uh, to be out on sea. Um, it's, it's one of those feelings that's really hard to describe unless you have that visual of what it means to see nothing but water around you and this small little rubber craft coming over the horizon. As it gets closer, you realize the amount of people that are inside of this little boat and you realize the fragility of this boat and that if the waves were to increase by any small amount, these people would drown without our presence. Who are the people who were in the boat? You're a nurse. You saw people probably in various states of uh, distress. Definitely. Um, people are coming from all over. We have a lot of people coming from different sub-Saharan African countries, uh, quite a lot of Eritreans and Somalis. Uh, we now see a lot of Libyans themselves leaving. A lot of these boats are launching off the coast of Libya. Libya, as uh, some people may or may not know, is, is a country that's in the middle of its own war right now, and it's quite a chaotic place to be. And unfortunately, these people who are either trying to make the crossing or came to Libya out of the hope of some sort of an opportunity are now being imprisoned and are essentially being forced onto these boats without many other options of going anywhere else. Um, what, what do you mean they're being imprisoned, essentially? Um, essentially, uh, in Libya, th this is a marketplace. Um, it's a live and well uh, human trading marketplace. It brings in lots of money, and, uh, and a lot of people are profiting off of this. So the more people arriving in Libya in the hopes of, of crossing to a better life are actually being in the process imprisoned and used. Uh, they're being extorted for the funds, and with that, they're being put on these boats. What physical problems do people in this situation have? They definitely have uh, exposure to the elements. They're spending quite a lot of hours on these vessels. Um, they're being exposed to the sun, to the cold, to the salt water. One of the most brutal parts of this journey is that, unfortunately, when gasoline mixes with salt water, it becomes incredibly corrosive and it peels the skin off. So you can only imagine when they're transferring this gasoline into these little engines and bumping around on the Mediterranean, the gasoline filters into the boat. People sit in that and eventually when they arrive to us, we see that lots of them have skin burns. I'm talking with Mark Learer. He's a nurse with Met Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontieres, and their exhibit Forced from Home is in Daily Plaza through Sunday. And if people walk through the exhibit, what do they see? Because it's a little bit of a tour and you yes. get in there and you and you 
uh, experience four different countries or learn about four different countries. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually five different five. contexts that we're talking about. And essentially what uh, we're doing is part of our responsibility when we're in the field is what we call bearing witness. So it's our job to go out into these contexts, see those realities come home and to reshare those stories. So with this, this exhibit, um, our, our hope is that people can come and for, for that hour-long tour get a sense of what this really means. What, what is it like to be forced from your home, to have to make a journey that you're vulnerable on, to, to suffer along the way, and to make decisions that I would never wish upon any one of my family members. Really what we're trying to make clear is that seeking safety is not a crime. We shouldn't be criminalizing these actions. We should be asking for safe passage for these people, and we should be thinking about this as a human problem, not as one to label. And the countries that people can experience and learn about are Afghanistan, Burundi, Honduras, South Sudan, and Syria. Exactly. Now, uh, the president of the United States and has set a new limit on refugees coming into the United States, and it's 30,000. It's much lower than it's been in previous years where it's been uh, around 100,000. Yes, yeah, that's great. What do you make of the U.S. policy on refugees these days? I mean, it's unfortunate to see that this is a historical low uh, for, any or, for any administration that we've had. Um, and, and the way I like to look at this is I think of countries that are actually taking these people in and the proportions and the numbers they're taking in. A country like Lebanon with a 4.5 million population took in 1 million Syrian refugees. That's about 30% of their population. Whereas if we think about the 33 thousand cap we've set here in the U.S., that comes nowhere near 30 percent of our population. So what the sense to me is that we're not doing our responsibility. Uh, The president would like to leave, he said, at the United Nations. Refugees should stay near the country they fled from. Is that um, what do you make of that solution? Well, I, I don't make much of that solution because I would say if you've come to those realities and you see what those realities mean, you realize very quickly that you would never wish for anyone in your family to be there. So why should we wish for others to have to stay in those places? Why did you start doing this work? I did this work, I mean, the short and simple answer without a long historical dialogue of my past uh, is that um, I I have a very privileged life. Um, I've had everything I've always wanted. I've had access to education, to health care, to food throughout my life. I've never felt what that means to not have that. So I felt a sense of responsibility that I, I owed this back to the parts of the world that don't have these luxuries. What was your first tour with Doctors Without Borders? My first tour was in Central African Republic in 2014 in the midst of quite a brutal conflict conflict uh, between two warring parties. What was that like? It was a very intense experience. Uh, it was my first mission, and I was dropped in the middle of what was basically a civil war at the time, two, part, two groups really essentially trying to genocide each other. And I was a medical responsible in the middle of a uh, very heavy and brutal fighting. So it really opened my, wise, my eyes very widely to, to what really goes on in some parts of the world. Is there a certain, I mean, do you get traumatized just doing this work, seeing uh, people who want to cut each other's heads off? Is uh, You come home and uh, you're traumatized. Definitely. I mean, there's no way to go through an experience like that and not have some level of trauma. I think the important thing is that you find a balance between that life and your, your personal life and you find ways to cope in a healthy manner to, to, to resolve those things. But also, I think it's healthy to know that a lot of people, for a lot of people, that's their realities. Uh, what 
do you hope to how long have you are you going to stay with the exhibit do, do people rotate in and out you do you have a stint with the exhibit so, and then... so we have a, a core staff um, I'm included in that core staff it's about 14 of us that travel with the entirety of the exhibit so we're the ones that organize we're the ones that make sure everything functions the people that join us along the way are the tour guides and these are field workers just like myself coming from all over the world and they come out here to the US to help us run these tours and give the give the tours themselves what kind of reaction do people have as as they go through the exhibit and come out? I mean, the exhibit is uh, its very visual. It's tactile. You're picking things up. You're touching them. You're seeing a replica of a boat. So I think it really, really does uh, set in for people in a deep way what this means. Uh, you know, so many times we read newspapers or we see the television, and that's one thing. But it's very different to actually sit in that boat and have someone who's been out in these contexts tell you what that reality means. I think people are really powerfully impacted, and people realize that Maybe this subject matter is a little bit deeper than the justice is being done on the nightly news. Well, thanks for the work you're doing, Mark. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Mark Lear is a nurse who's completed four assignments with Doctors Without Borders since 2014, and he is part of the exhibit Forced from Home. There's tents and boats all over Daly Plaza this week. It's through Sunday, and you can go there and go through the exhibit. Thanks a lot for joining us, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up tomorrow on WBEZ, we expect at this time that you will be listening to the Kavanaugh hearings. You will be grabbing the radio with both your hands and holding it to your ears and listening to the amazing events that are transpiring in the Kavanaugh hearings. And uh, hopefully that will supplant worldview tomorrow and we'll all get to listen to what's going on there. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about the globalization of the local craft beer industry. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Brazil's second largest brewery has rapidly grown into the world's largest beer company. They may even own your favorite craft beer. Josh Knoll tells the story in his book, Barrel Age Stout and Selling Out, Goose Island, Anheuser-Busch, and How Craft Beer Became Big Business. Josh, thanks for joining me and shattering all my illusions about the craft beer industry. I'm very happy to do it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Tell us about these Brazilians, because they are an amazing story. They are an amazing story. They are, uh, it, it is probably not hyperbole to call them some of the, uh, some of the, the most brilliant business people in the world. They uh, exactly, as you say, they started out very small as uh, brewery owners in Brazil and grew that company to become the biggest brewery owners in South America and then Europe and now the world. And it's not like they love beer or anything. You've got the guy as uh, these guys are investment bankers. And one of them you've got quoted in the book is saying, I looked around at the richest men in all the different countries in South America. They were all brewers. So I started buying breweries. Yeah. And one of one of the three, it's uh, 3G Capital is is their um – their firm that that is the and then Anheuser Busch InBev uh, is an outgrowth of that. One of the three founders there reportedly doesn't even drink beer. So yes, they're they're very much not uh, in it for the beer. They're in it to make money, and they seem to be pretty good at that. Though they've hit a few speed bumps here and there. 
so they but they bought up all these South American companies. Then they bought up Anheuser Busch. Yep. They well they 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 uh, grew to dominate South America. Then they went to Europe and uh, created uh, InBev, which was the basically the 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 dominant beer company in Europe and the dominant beer company in South America merged. And then yep. Then they they came to our shores and they bought Anheuser Busch. Uh, in what was a hostile takeover back in, uh, I want to say it was 2008, off the top of my head. And that thing bought uh, Miller Coors? Uh, and then, yep, Anheuser-Busch InBev a couple years ago <laughs> acquired, well, they, they bought SAB Miller, right. which was the uh, based in London, uh, strong South African presence, and Anheuser-Busch InBev acquired the largest beer company in the world, acquired SAB Miller, the second largest beer company in the world, to forge the largest beer company in the world by a mile, and now Heineken is in second place behind them. All right. And so they own uh, – can you give us a, a, like some kind of number of about how many companies and continents Worldwide? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, dozens and dozens and dozens. I mean, they, they, they have uh, – yeah, they just – they have dozens of breweries everywhere. And what, <laughs> what the book gets into is how they uh, – moved forcefully into craft beer, both in the U.S., where they bought 10 breweries, and uh, and globally, they bought another 25 or so around the world. And so this is what these finance guys do, right? They're not so good at organic growth, but they're really good at buying companies that they can't create themselves. And Goose Island, our little old Chicago brewery pioneer in the craft industry, is their first acquisition. Yep, that's that's really what kicked off the uh, that's why the book. My, I was lucky that my book started off as about Goose Island and ended up becoming this far larger story about the largest beer company in the world and how it got so big and how it's sort of, t- with in some regards, taking over craft beer. Uh, and yeah, their very first acquisition in that effort of the thirty-five or so global breweries they've bought since 2011, the very first was Goose Island, uh, right here in Chicago, 2011. I'm talking with Josh Knoll about his book, Barrel Age Stout and Selling Out, Goose Island, Anheuser-Busch, and How Craft Beer Became Big Business. Uh, the idea that Anheuser-Busch had when they bought Goose Island was just, we don't sell enough bud in Chicago, basically. But they've uh, garnered this uh, other philosophy, this larger philosophy about why, they, why they've gone ahead and gobbled up all these other craft brew industries. What is the philosophy of Anheuser-Busch here? It's a great question, and it, it, it changed over time. When they bought Goose Island in 2011, they dearly needed an IPA, for instance, an India Pale Ale, uh, and they, did, they just didn't have one, uh, a compelling one in their portfolio. So they bought Goose Island, and they thought, well, we'll just we'll buy Goose Island and rocket that IPA out from coast to coast, and we'll be, we'll be good. We'll be good. Uh, they weren't good because craft beer is very much defined by uh, – local and regional and it has identity more than just a super bowl commercial you can do that for bud light miller light things like that for craft beer it doesn't work quite the same so they they bought goose island in 2011 and then they didn't do much for a few years they had to take some time and figure out what they had in goose island what craft beer was they didn't really understand the industry and that's why these guys are strike me as fairly sharp is that they they know what they don't know and the old version of Anheuser-Busch, back when it was based in St. Louis and it was a proud American company, they were convinced that Bud and Bud Light could solve all the world's problems. They didn't need anything else. These Brazilian guys who are, you know, obviously they're global players, uh, they understand the world, I think, with a little more nuance. And they came to learn 
that craft beer operates differently from the big brands. And they that's when they opened up the wallet and they kept on kept on buying and they bought with a regional strategy in the US and then they went on to buy around the globe uh, in in the uh, in the hottest markets. And what they end up doing is having a uh, you know a, a, a cornucopia of little beers to splay out in their distributorships so they can walk in and say, "What do you want? We've got regional beers from everywhere in America, and we can fill all your taps for you, and we can we can just uh, supply all your needs." Very much. Uh, yes, that is part of the strategy. But they're also using Goose Island now as a global flagship craft brand. So and uh, the U.S. is the largest craft beer market in the world in terms of dollar sales. In terms of volume sales, uh, the largest beer market in the world is China. So there's – and China's rapidly changing and there's probably a lot of runway there for craft beer. So guess what? Uh, American craft brand is suddenly popping up all over China. Little old Goose Island. Little old Goose Island, yep. And uh, there was a great article in, I want to say it was Fortune magazine a couple, maybe a year ago or so, about how uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev is using Goose as a, really as a weapon in China to grab taps from local brewers. And there is also... um Pubs that are Goose Island pubs on every continent in America in the world now. Well, yeah, they're they're brewing Goose Island beer in China. They're brewing it in Europe. They're brewing it in Australia. Uh, they're probably brewing it in South America. I don't know for sure off the top of my head. And yes, they are exporting the brand uh, experience is a big part of craft beer. Uh, it's you know again, it's not about commercial so much. It's about experience, and that's what you know the millennial consumer quote unquote uh, seems to want. So. Goose Island, among other breweries, are, are giving it to them. And so, yeah, Goose Island has pubs in Mexico, in London, um, in South Korea, in China. And, yeah, there's about half dozen or, or more now Goose Island pubs popping up all over the place. One's coming in Australia. The whole idea of craft beer has been kind of to increase the number of choices, create better quality beers. All right, the, the appealing thing is uh, uh, new beers, mm -hmm. fun beers, and uh, local regional experiences. But this conglomerate tries to stamp that out. They 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 well, they, they want market share, and if you get too big, they are going to force you out by prices or distribution methods. On one hand, I think there is a there is concern that they are trying to stamp it out. On another, they're trying to uh, sort of commandeer it to a degree. So they're they're trying to they're being big beer and craft beer at the same time, um, and because that's the only way that it's going to sort of it's going to work for them. It's going to sort of convince the audience because again, the, this it's a different audience than the. the People who see, uh, you know, the horses galloping through the snow during the Super Bowl and think, "Oh yeah, okay, I'll buy that." Um, and yes, distribution is it, that's it, it. That was one of the hardest parts to sort of dig into in the book and write about in a way that would be interesting and wouldn't put people to sleep. But it's a crucial issue how the beer gets basically from the brewery to your glass, and there are uh, loads of uh, different factors that that weigh in, and it. Based on the country, there are different regulatory climates. And in the U.S., 
things are a little tighter over here in terms of regulation. There are still plenty of ways to make sure the beer appears uh, where the brewery wants it to. Uh, but in places like China, it's pretty much a free-for-all. And Anheuser-Busch is able to just sort of use its – or Anheuser-Busch InBev, I should say, uh, is able to just use its might to, uh, to grow as it, it ple- as it pleases in a lot of ways. Did the craft beer industry win by having these guys adopt their stuff, or did uh, the craft beer industry lose? I love this question. This is uh, this is sort of uh, the the central thread I feel like of the book as I was reporting it out. Uh, it's argued both sides. Um, the there is an argument that. Craft beer won because it forced the biggest beer company in the world, the biggest beer companies in the world, because Heineken bought Lagunitas. So, you know, right. it's not like Anheuser-Busch is the only one uh, wading in. Uh, they, craft beer forced the biggest beer companies in the world to, to, to get in their sandbox, basically. Um, craft beer arguably lost because now these big beer companies are buying up craft breweries and blending in and no one, well, very few people relatively can stand in a store and point to and, uh, you know, look at the brands on the shelf and understand the ownership and where their money goes when they buy a certain brand. And that's what I hope to, you know, enlighten for people in the book. Josh Knoll's book is Barrel Aged Stout and Selling Out, Goose Island, Anheuser-Busch, and How Craft Beer Became Big Business. Thanks a lot for joining us, Josh Knoll, and crushing all my dreams about the charms of the beer industry. You'll just have to crack one after the show and put your feet up. Coming up after the break, we're going to have some music and Catalina Maria Johnson will be here for Global Notes and we'll talk about some of the music that's being preserved by UNESCO. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. UNESCO is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. It may be best known for World Heritage Sites, but they preserve music, too. With me is Catalina Maria Johnson, here for Global Notes, our look at international music. Catalina's host of Beast, Beast, Beat Latino, or Beast Latino, as I like <laughs> to call it. Or Best Latino. <laughs> and uh, Catalina writes widely on music and culture. And what are we hearing here? It sounds excellent. Yeah, it's really beautiful music by the Chicago Folklore Ensemble. And it's in a program and an album that they put out called The World in Chicago. So uh, this is also on the UNESCO list of intangible cultural heritage of humanity, as are in some way most of the musics that we're hearing today. I like the sound of that list, intangible cultural heredity. Heritage, heritage. and heritage. It's in, yeah, of all of us. That's great. I love it. I love it because it's a, and it doesn't include just music. If you want to just peruse, it includes dance forms, it includes theater, all kinds of intangible cultural heritage that belong to the entire human family, in a way, is what UNESCO is saying. And they have this up on their website, and it is fun to peruse. It is it, a rabbit hole to peruse. <laughs> it is, because then you, they link to everything, and you can find out more about it. This is a music from the Lao people. 
And the, the Chicago Folklore Ensemble, this Chicago in the World, has music from different musicians represented here in Chicago. Now, uh, they have an upcoming concert, but it's actually not this music. It's actually music uh, called Gitanjali Song Offerings by Rabindranath Tagore. So it's Indian music, which actually is also represented on that UNESCO list. That's coming up November 3rd. That sounds terrific. That Chicago Folklore Ensemble there uh, doing some fine music. Uh, where else are we going to go here? Well, we're going all the way to Veracruz, Mexico. Now, they have on the UNESCO list um, the art forms of the Totonac in, uh, indigenous peoples. This is actually from another part of the same state, um, but they're also going to be here. So this is Radio Jarocho and Senen Saforino with uh, music from Mexico, Son Jarocho from Veracruz. De sur a norte los ríos Siempre hacia la mar se van Siempre hacia la mar se van De sur a norte los ríos Así van los sueños míos Y tal vez se perderán Pero todo este vacío Otras aguas llenarán That's music from Veracruz, uh, Radio Jaracho, and they'll be at the Old Town School of Folk Music on October 3rd. Yeah, it's uh, amazing music. It's actually Afro-Mexican music, and it combines uh, Africa and indigenous rooted music from that area, as well as some Creole and European influences. And this uh, band, which is uh, in New York, Radio Jarocho, but Senen Seforino, who is with them um, from Veracruz, as well as members from Mexico, and it, it, it'll they'll be October third at Old Town, and it's a beautiful music. Yeah. When I think about music with integrity, I think that's what we're talking about. It's it's got a it's lasted. It has integrity. It it's, stands up and uh, speaks to you. Indeed, and it and it's lasted because it has spoken to people over many decades, if not this music, hundreds of years. It's probably from the colony uh, times, colonial times in Mexico from at least the uh, 1700s. It's been mentioned. It was actually denounced to the Inquisition (laughs) as a music that brought people of of, uh, mixed races together and dancing lewdly. (laughs) Well, when the Inquisition comes out against you, you know you're having a good time. (laughs) You know you're doing something right. Um, Let's swing over to Colombia and see hear some music from Colombia. Uh, yeah, and this is also going to be at Old Town, and this is music from uh, cities that were called uh, Palenque. These are areas where um, enslaved persons fled, African enslaved persons fled, and established free communities. But now you're going to hear, this is the contemporary generation, so there's a little bit of hip-hop mixed in to some very rooted music. This is Combileza Mi. Fortalece, dure a pele, lengua 
planeta Tierra. That's Combelisa Me, and they're doing some palenque music with a little hip-hop rap in there, and they're coming to the Old Town School of Folk Music on October 17th. And palenque music is one of the musics that was uh, recognized by UNESCO and uh, from Colombia. preservation yeah. from Colombia. From Colombia. Next, we go to Mexico. Well, of course, and of course, if you expect one Mexican music to make the UNESCO list, this is it. Porque quiero vivir así Dicen que yo soy enjundiosa Caprichosa y hermosa Mariachi music from one of the great modern practitioners of that, Lila Downs. Indeed, indeed. There's a, she's really become the diva of mariachi ranchera music. She takes it on and makes it fresh. And of course, uh, Lila Downs has this incredible voice. So she can just soar over those um, very festive strings. And this is a song called Peligrosa, which also means dangerous. <laughs> so I really like it. Mariachi music, of course. And she's playing the Auditorium Theater, which would be a fantastic place to see Indeed, her. November 9th. So again, you know, these UNESCO musics, but we're able to still hear them live. And mariachi's been around also several hundreds of years, at least in, its, in some form. And there's nobody even knows where mariachi came from and where the word came from might be an indigenous word because there were celebrations to Maria, Maria, and it, or it could be French from mariage because these were like celebratory bands. So it's been around and all of these musics have been really um, present for a long time. Although we're kind of going kind of contemporary next. <laughs> I'm talking with uh, Catalina Maria Johnson, and she is a fine music writer, and she's host of Beat Latino, and you would be a much hipper person if you followed her on social media at Catalina Maria J. Uh, on social media, she keeps you up to date on everything cool that's going on. Um, we're going to go out on some music that has been recognized by UNESCO from Japan. Well, actually, uh, Japan's been recognized in a number of ways. This is a little bit not uh, that exact music or that exact uh, art form, but it's a a very, very renowned, I think a treasure, a local treasure here uh, in Chicago, Tatsu Aoki, with his Miyumi project. He was with the Fred Anderson Band. He's a jazz musician, a taiko musician, a bassist. And we have a beautiful sculpture, Skylanding, which look it up. And Yoko Ono created it for Chicago. And in honor of that, the Tatsu Aoki and Miyumi Project did a CD covering her songs, and this is one of them. And they're coming December 8th and 9th to the MCA. Yes, Tatsu Aoki and the different Miyumi Project and a number of guests. There's a couple of shows at the MCA. Catalina Maria Johnson, thanks a lot for another great Global Notes. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, 
Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.